You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Oh, God, how can I escape? That's what one concert reviewer thought about what was the worst musical event of her life. She went to see Bob Dylan to hear some of the great old songs. Guy had some serious albums under his belt by the time we get to 1979. Highway 41 Revisited, Blood on the Tracks, Blonde on Blonde. Now she wanted to hear some of those songs and see what his repertoire in 1979 would have in store. Expected some quirks, the songs removed, new songs played from the set list. But this? Gospel songs, a flyer shoved in her face by a smiling Jesus freak that said, There is no fire escape in hell. And the band came out, and Sylvie Simmons of Sounds Magazine was wondering if she zipped out right now. How could she explain it to the record company that paid $15 for a ticket? I was wrestling with my conscience, she said. Plus, the magazine wanted that review. I decided to accept my martyrdom. When the man himself came out and... Refused to play any of his old songs. He sang gospel tunes. Not just a little God here or there, but this was serious stuff. I used to say I'm not a prophet. And they said, yes, you are, Bob. Now I say Jesus is the answer. And they say, Bob Dylan's no prophet. The crowd screams. Titles of songs out at him. I want you. Like a Rolling Stone. Visions of Joanna. They would get none of it. More gospel with lectures. There are only two types of people, saved people and lost people. While some new Bob Dylan fans shouted amen to him, others said, God, awful, and walked out. He was writing new music. He summoned Mark Knopfler of Dire Straits, who had no idea he was making a religious album. And he even tried to convert his producer who told him he was a 62-year-old Jew and an atheist, and don't try it. No one knew what had quite happened. Some said it was coming off drug use. Others said it was a grab for listeners. Others said this was a legitimate conversion. He had taken a uh, three-month course, Vineland Church, outside of L.A. A few pointed to a gospel singer that he was living with who may have been responsible for this change. The inspiration for a song called Precious Angel. Either you got faith or you got unbelief. There ain't no neutral ground. It's not all bad music. Serve Somebody has lasted as a hit. But fans were turned off. Some fans. Of course, he got new fans. After all, there were a lot of people saying in 1979 that they were born again. Including the president. And the two people 
running against him. The White Sox couldn't catch a break. They couldn't get crowds in the stands. The baseball wasn't exciting enough. In 1978, their record was 90 losses. Didn't get much better in 79 with 73-87. Owner Bill Veet thought, well, you can draw people with a losing team and bread and circus. But you can't draw people with a losing team and silence. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. They had done all sorts of different types of promotions, discounting certain people, women's night, teenagers night, having a dance party. They even had a very successful disco party. This was the disco era, after all. Staying Alive had been a popular movie, and there were disco clubs all across the country. But on July 12th, 1979, he came up with another program, one that would be infamous. Since he had a disco night, why not have an anti-disco night? Steve Dahl was a Chicago shock jock and an anti-disco campaigner at a rock station, WLUP, 97.9 FM. He promoted for weeks that there was to be a disco demolition night. If you bring a disco record, you'll have your ticket discounted to... The FM frequency of the station, all right, well, we're not going to charge you 0.9 cents, so we'll charge you 98 cents. Kaminsky Park, these days, was getting about 15,000 people for White Sox games. It could hold 44,000. That night, streams of people with anti-disco signs and banners and lots of records in their arms, aiming to burn them, came to savage the fed of the decade. So many were headed there that the Chicago police blocked the off-ramps on the Dan Ryan Expressway. The owner raced to the stadium as 55,000 people arrived. Dylan's Christian conversion was controversial to say the least. Fans kept yelling to hear the old songs. I told you the times they are changing, and they are. Dylan shouted at another concert. It's end times. Look at the war in the Middle East, told an interviewer. I believe in the book of Revelations. His conversion started in 1978, he said, when he was looking for something, something new, and felt a powerful presence. One story had him grasping a silver cross all of a sudden. But whatever it was, it knocked him down. It's not the first time Dylan had a disappointed fans in 65 when he came out electric. And many thought maybe he was just trying to stir up controversy again to get more listeners. Maybe he was trying to grab on 
to this new movement. Music reviewer Kurt Loder at the time panned him a Rolling Stone article, noting Dylan didn't just go Christian. He went hook, line, and sinker for all of the fundamentalist liturgy. He plummeted to the level of a spiritual pamphleteer. Maybe it was sincere. His friend and poet, Allen Ginsberg, thought that Dylan was doing this to get himself jarred into a transformational point where his music could become better. You know, it was pointed out there were at least 80 references more to the Bible and various Dylan songs before he officially became out Christian. And he never did officially make any statement that he was no longer uh, Christian. It was just noted that he came out with three albums, A Slow Train Coming, Saved, and Shot of Love. Shot of Love has a few secular songs on it, and then his next album has some biblical imagery, but it's no longer Christian. He never said anything. Most he told an interviewer was, I'll leave that up to you. Dylan had joined a trend. After all, estimates had the number of born-again Americans from 25 to 40 million by the time of the 1980 election, maybe as high as 50. There were 1,300 Christian radio stations at the time, and one-third of commercial publishing was Christian. And a lot of that, certainly the growth in all of that, was coming from evangelicals. And powerhouse televangelists were a feature of these times. Jerry Falwell, his moral majority, Pat Robertson, James Baker, the 700 Club, well beyond its original 700 telethon supporters, and was a force. A newspaper, uh, the Washington Post said that in 1960, the election would be about the Catholic vote. In 1980, the question will be, who will get the born-again vote? It was a good question. But whatever they did, all three presidential candidates in 1980 were born again, or so they said, in one form or another. The president, a Southern Baptist, said he had an experience right before he ran for president. Though evangelicals would have liked to see more forceful stands on their issues, abortion, homosexuality, the ERA, than they got from Carter. The candidate of the GOP, Ronald Reagan, said that he was born again when he was baptized. And a third-party candidate, John Anderson, belonged to an evangelical church. Though, as a congressman in Washington, he found a Presbyterian church to be more convenient. Hundens wondered, what would these televangelists do? They said that they wouldn't make any political statements, but many felt that with a single word, any support for the Baptist president would be siphoned off to Reagan. Jerry Farwell said he wouldn't endorse any candidate, but he said in Reagan he found someone he couldn't object to. His organizations would help to register tens of thousands of evangelicals. What if these televangelists made more forceful pro-statements? What questions about church and state would be raised? These were questions as the 1980 election approached. Would it matter? Did they have to speak at all? Because there were supporters out there anyway. There was a committee for a free Congress vowing to back evangelical candidates in 150 congressional races. Christian Voice, an organization out of California, planned to spend a million or more on TV ads against Carter. No action on abortion, they said. They would also target 50 congressmen who didn't live up to their moral standards. At Kaminsky Park... 
thousands of people were now trying to get into Disco Demolition Night. Some had no tickets. White Sox owner Dan V sent security to the gates. They were overtasked, and so no security was on the field during the game or in the stands. People noticed, and they started, slowly at first, throwing the records that they couldn't get into that overflown box onto the field while the players were playing. Some of the Detroit Tigers players got hit by records. Rusty Staub said records were flowing through the air. God almighty, i never seen anything nearly so dangerous. Records were swishing around and then sticking into the ground like daggers. Several times during the game, the play was interrupted by flying records. Both teams decided to wear their batting helmets when taking the field to protect their heads. But it wasn't just records. Then came bottles, even firecrackers. Most of these new arrivals to Kaminsky Park weren't really interested in watching the White Sox or the Detroit Tigers. They were unfurling big disco Sox banners. The first game was played. And at 8-16, this was a doubleheader, they would play a second game. But first, DJ Steve Dahl came in, dressed in army fatigues and a helmet, and riding around in a jeep. He asked the crowd to shout, Disco sucks! Disco sucks! We're going to blow up these records real good! The crowd went crazy. And he hit a button, and boom! blew up a box of records in the center of the field. And then, immediately about 5,000 people ran onto the field. They had more records to go into the fire. Owner Veek tried to grab the microphone, tried to get people to get back to their seats to, to start the next game. The PA system shouted warnings. Please return to your seats. The scoreboard had a message. Please return to your seats. No one would listen. Baseball fans in the, in the stand, those who came to actually watch the second game, were angered. Kaminsky Park tried playing, take me out to the ball game. Nobody listened. The Rowdies continued to run around the field and stomp on disco records. DJ Dahl at this point, after it's going on for nearly an hour, offers that maybe he can calm the crowd down. Management says no. We don't want you on the, on the mic anymore. And by 9.08, Chicago police arrive. They disperse the rowdy fans in the field. But the field is so ripped up, they couldn't play. Later, baseball decides that they have to forfeit the game to the Detroit Tigers. Nobody remembers that White Sox-Tigers game, or nobody that I know of, but Disco Demolition Night did make its place in history. And you'd think the family would learn of it, but... His son, Mike Veek, later bought the Charleston River Dogs, a minor league team, tried it again in 2014. Now, there weren't as many records to burn, but he decided to have fans bring in Justin Bieber and Miley Cyrus merchandise and burn it. All in all, DJ Steve Dahl felt that Disco Demolition Night hastened the end of the fad that was to define the 70s as the 80s came in. But critic Dave Marsh of Rolling Stone wasn't as pleased with the night. It was a paranoid fantasy, and it was an expression of bigotry, as disco was seen as black and homosexual. Most 
record company started renaming the music class just Dance Music. At one cabinet meeting, President Ford slouched in the room, slumped over in his chair, and sat down. He looked tired, and some visiting congressman noticed it. He's been up watching the late-night returns, said one. Indeed, the president had been. And those returns were not good. He lost the primaries in Indiana, Georgia, and Alabama, all on the same night. He lost to Governor Ronald Reagan, who was mounting an unheard of then challenge to a sitting president. Despite an honorific win in Iowa and a close win in the New Hampshire first-in-the-nation primary, wins in other states, despite occupying the Oval and meeting world leaders at the Rose Garden, he had to continue to fight for his own party's nomination to get a chance at a full elected term of his own. So the congressman, sensing Ford's dejection after the meeting was over, applauded. But they did more than that. Led by Congressman John Anderson of Illinois, who would have a future role in presidential politics, They passed a resolution supporting the President of the United States and his service to the nation. Why? Well, Anderson said, he was down in the dumps. But Ford had been minority leader in the House. These were his friends. It was in the country, especially the Republican states, Texas, Virginia, Alabama, where Ford was losing primaries to Reagan. One of these places was South Carolina. South Carolina had a convention system for nominating presidential candidates at that time. And party leaders were not afraid to make a strong statement. In 1960, Nixon did not get their approval. They held out for Barry Goldwater. In 1964, they backed him all the way. In 1976, the South Carolina GOP had no problem tossing a moderate president for a true blue conservative Reagan. Reagan had the governor of South Carolina behind him, the party locked up, and the state was for him. President Ford would win that contest. He narrowly beat Reagan in a bruiser, a battle that went all the way to the GOP convention in Kansas City. Four years later now, Reagan was a frontrunner, but not a given for the 1980 nomination. Ford actually hinted at getting back in. George Bush, playing off fears that Reagan was too conservative to be nominated or elected, won Iowa. But George Bush wasn't too much of a challenge for Reagan, right? Because Reagan could win the South like he did against Ford. The problem was John Connolly, former governor of Texas, Democrat-turned-Republican, yes, the John Connolly that was in the car, and shot the same time of the Kennedy assassination. Nixon's Treasury Secretary, charismatic vote-getter, he could compete in the South. Between Bush taking northern states in 1980, Connolly taking southern states in 1980, this was a problem. Reagan would be left out. There'd be nothing left on the table. In South Carolina, Reagan lost the support of the state's venerable senator, Strom Thurmond, and others who felt that Reagan just wasn't electable enough to beat Jimmy Carter. With the support of these party leaders went the state of South Carolina to John Connolly. But for the actions of three men, that's exactly where things would have been left. 
but these men turned it around. One was party chair Daniel Ross. Neutral officially, but behind the scenes, he was for Reagan. That presented a problem. I knew we couldn't beat them in a convention, Ross said, but I could win a primary. So, with political consultant and negative campaigning wonder kid Lee Atwater and future governor, then freshman congressman Carol Campbell, they persuaded enough party members to hold the first in the South primary three days before several states in the South would vote. And it was held on a Saturday, so Ross said the working man could participate. Now, helping Reagan was part of the reason for this, but it was also about party building. Let's say you wanted to start a party, say the Green Party in your state that's not really competitive now, almost from scratch. What do you do? See, the GOP in the South, even as late as 1980, that's really the situation. Yes, you had a couple of high-profile politicians like Strom Thurmond who switched parties. And you did have, obviously, former Democrats voting Republican. But the party wasn't developed. The Democratic Party had more registrants. And in the same year when all this Republican activity went on, Democrats were going to win a major Senate race with Fritz Holling winning with the lion's share of the vote. So the Democratic Party was still strong party really didn't know where the Republicans were. Democrats had been in power for a hundred years. One answer to this question is, if you want to build a party, perhaps you stage a fight. In the 1978 elections in South Carolina, Russ had a couple of people that owed him favors who he asked to challenge Republicans who were incumbents in primaries. Are you sure one of them asked? Didn't seem like the right thing to do for the party. In a general election, Republicans could win, but they didn't know who was voting for them. See, you can get from the election board who turned out, and you can make some guesses based on what towns you won, that there might be the GOP voters, but it's not science. You, of course, have local Republican clubs, and you can identify those people and perhaps tell them to get the neighbors out and all that, but those are the hardcore supporters. Run a primary, and you know that every voter who turns out is one of yours. And you can get the names. We got 35,000 names in the 1978 primaries. Ross Bragg later interviewed in 2001. In 1980, in the presidential contest, we got 75,000. These are sources of money, volunteers, lawn signs. So half for party building reasons, half for helping a friend. South Carolina's first in the South primary was born. What Lee Atwater would call the firewall. Ross got the primary done. Carol Campbell ran officially the Reagan campaign in the state, but Atwater won the race for Reagan. Then, 29, and already a force in the Southern GOP, having won 28 races in the South at this point, running a race against a longtime South Carolina Democratic politician, Tom Turnipseed. He hinted at his opponent's psychiatric treatment as a teen. Turnipseed, he said, was hooked up on jumper cables. The reporters ate it up. John Connolly had spent $10 million in the state. Atwater told a reporter that Connolly had bribed black preachers in order to get votes. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more— 
We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The Nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. The story had no basis in fact whatsoever. Preachers denied it. Everyone denied it. It got blamed on the Bush campaign, so it looked bad for both Connolly and Bush. Later, Atwater would tell the reporter who he fed the story to, you got used. Reagan also worked hard in the state, spending a lot of time there visiting town by town, and won the state 50%. With South Carolina, he eliminated Connolly and won a very easy walk to the nomination against George Bush. Nineteen eighty singed the legend of the firewall, protecting front runners from insurgents who might come out of Iowa or New Hampshire with momentum. It zapped the nineteen eighty Bush and Connolly campaign. But eight years later, Bush found it useful to rid himself of pesky Bob Dole. Of course, Dole would find it useful to rid himself of Pat Buchanan, who won the nineteen ninety six New Hampshire primary. Same with George W. Bush, stunned by John McCain. He knew he could go to South Carolina. Vancouver, this is it. Fateful words. In March 1980, seismographs on Mount St. Helens in Washington State revealed that activity was brisk in this mountain that was thought to be quite dormant. Earthquakes. Multiple events. Earthquakes. Scaling 4.0 on the Richter scale were happening every hour in that march. March 27th, the top burst off the mountain, shooting a plume 6,000 feet into the air. I'm blowing a 250-feet crater through the summit. The eruptions continued, one per hour, over the next couple of days. April 22, 1980, they stop. People are asked to clear the perimeter. An old man, Harry R. Truman, that's right, Harry R. Truman, born in 1896, a resident of the state of Washington, the owner and caretaker of Mount St. Helens Lodge at Spirit Lake, near the foot of the mountain refuses to leave. He wasn't exactly a nice man. He drove around in a pink 1957 Cadillac and swore at people. He was known for poaching. He was known for stealing gravel from the National Park Service and fishing on American Indian land. I don't have any idea whether it will blow, he said. I don't believe it to the point that I'm going to pack up. The eruptions continued one per hour for the next few days. Then they slowed, and on April 22, 1980, they stopped. 
But that May 7th, it started again. What's more, aerial footage was showing that the side of the mountain was bulging. This was coming from the amount of magma that was in it. State officials tried to evacuate the area, with the exception of a few scientists and security officials. On May 17th, they attempted one final time persuade residents such as Harry R. Truman to leave. On May 18th, a five-Richter-scale earthquake came, and David Johnson at the U.S. Geological Service, thought to be out of the range of the volcano, reported, Vancouver, this is it. It would be his last words. In the end, the lava was not the issue. It was the cloud of gas and the rock debris that the gas cloud threw out of the mountain faster than the speed of sound. Everything eight miles around was wiped out. Trees, animals, glaciers, highways, cars, 200 homes, and unfortunately, 57 people. It nearly took a plane down that was observing it because of that cloud of gas, if not for crafty piloting. It deposited... 540 million tons of ash, and send that ash in different forms to seven states. By the time President Carter was able to view it in an airplane, said the area looked like a crater on the face of the moon. Harry R. Truman was never found. But in politics, there was another earthquake. On July 9, 1978, Estimates of 100,000 women marched on Washington. Not the largest event ever by today's standards, but certainly very large for its time. 325 different groups wearing purple, white, and gold banners. The original colors of the Women's Party started before the 19th Amendment was passed and women were allowed to vote. The colors adopted by Alice Paul, a suffragist, leading a charge for a constitutional amendment. Paul had just died the year before. The march took three hours because of the size of the crowd, and police had to close more streets than they had planned. It was really in support of the passage of a sentence of law, at least the constitutional meaty portion, that read like this. Equality of rights under the law shall not be abridged on the basis of sex. It was proposed as an idea in the 1920s after the 19th Amendment had passed and made the vote of women official, but the House and Senate didn't approve it at that time. In fact, Congress didn't get around to approving it until 1972. Once it did, coming in the wake of the 26th Amendment, which had allowed 18-year-olds to vote, and was passed very quickly, it seemed like this Equal Rights Amendment would be passed quickly as well. Now, while the important part of the amendment was three sentences, it does have three sections. One we just read. The second is that this amendment must be ratified within seven years. That would be 1979. And the third would be that Congress shall have the power to enforce this law. All of those are really important, just as important as the first statement. The fact that Congress can have the power to enforce the law means that they could overcome any state regulations that might be in place and actually act as the enforcement. Seven years seemed like plenty of time. Straight out of the gate, 
it was immensely popular and it was bipartisan. And states that we wouldn't think of as passing something like an equal rights amendment, Idaho, South Dakota, immediately did so. 22 states ratified it in the first year, 1972. Then eight more in 1973. Three more in 1974 for 32 states, where 38 were needed for passage. Six to go. One more passes it in 1975. But the pace starts slowing. Questions are raised. Could the ERA deny women the right to be supported by their husband? Could it deny privacy rights? Could it deny any right that was given to a woman alone? And probably the most deadly, though no politician at all at that time or now suggested it of any serious measure, that women would be forced into the draft. An activist, Phyllis Schlafly, becomes the most prominent opponent, starting a group called Stop to Stop the ERA. Schlafly has a long history in Republican politics, supporting Goldwater in the 50s and 60s, opposing the presidential nomination of Richard Nixon because of his stance on civil rights, but always um, presenting herself in politics as a common housewife and was very politically involved. She raised these questions, the aforementioned draft, and would, heaven forbid, and this is 1975, would such an ERA allow homosexual marriage? It says, after all, on account of sex. By the time you get to 1976, the Republicans have an open battle in their convention over this ERA. In 1972, both parties support it the Democrats and the Republicans. By the time you get to 1976, the Republicans have an open battle between Ford and Reagan, and they have an open battle over the ERA with Phyllis Schlafly and others, Strom Thurmond, very prominent in these discussions, Jesse Helms, very prominent in these discussions, opposing the ERA, and Melissa Fenwick, congresswoman from New Jersey, supporting it. And very weak neutral statements come out of the convention. By 1980, the Republican platform opposes the ERA. Indiana ratifies the ERA in 1977 and becomes the 35th state to do so. That means only three states away. And for some time, in fact, up until very recently, Indiana remained that 35th state. Elizabeth Holtzman of New York supported H.R. 638 to extend the ERR deadline to 1982. With the show of force in Washington, it passed. You had this question going on during the ERA debate, which is very close to politics of today, I must point out. Phyllis Schlafly, for instance, had a lot of power within the Republican Party, say, in the conservative group, in sort of intimidating more moderate members. In terms of grassroots efforts, denying grassroots support to congressmen, but pro-ERA groups could usually put more people into rallies, show more force in big public events, and perhaps had more voters. Congress then extends the deadline that they set in 1972, three years, to 1982, but no other state accepts. There's tremendous pressure not to do so. The states aren't in the same shape politically as we think of now. 
Illinois becomes the big battleground. Sonia Johnson and seven other women lead a hunger strike for 37 days in Springfield, Illinois at the legislature. They fail to get them to pass. She'll be excommunicated from the Mormon Church for her activities and remain an activist. No other state passes the Equal Rights Amendment, and in the time between the expiration and today, Nebraska, Tennessee, Kentucky, Idaho, and South Dakota, five states that had ratified the ERA to be what would have been at that time the 27th Amendment, rescinded their ratification. Rescission is not a right directly recognized in the Constitution, not mentioned. It's something that would have to go to the courts. It is true that the 14th Amendment was accepted by the Secretary of State and became part of the Constitution, despite New Jersey and Ohio rescinding it. And it remained law, even though North Carolina and South Carolina, as soon as the Reconstruction governments were thrown off, also rescinded it. So rescission is very controversial in any case. But something new has happened just in the past three years. Nevada became the 36th state to pass the ratification for the Equal Rights Amendment in 2017. Virginia, just this month, in 2020. And Illinois, where the battle had gone on in 1982, passed it again in 2018. What does that mean? Not much. It's going to be directly, it's going to be a fight in the courts. It does put into question if there is a change in the House and Senate to a House and Senate that's either Democratic or with enough Republicans who perhaps support the Equal Rights Amendment for whatever reason, they could perhaps extend the deadline to 2020 or 2021 or what have you and then accept these three states and accept the amendment. There's a court case that a lot of people are focused on, Coleman v. Miller, 1930s case about the unsuccessful child labor amendment, where Kansas had voted against the child labor amendment, but then a House and a narrow vote in the Senate where the lieutenant governor broke a tie, voted for ratification of the amendment, and could their vote count? The Supreme Court said yes. The previous vote against it had nothing to do with the ratification vote for it. But it also said something else, that it was a political question, and it was up to Congress to decide. Now, there's counters to that. Uh, others say, well, that doesn't mean that Congress gets to decide everything involving amendments. It's an interesting question and something that will be looked at more in the future. But it was a huge issue that every politician would have been asked about in 79 and in 1980. Originally, I had talked about South Carolina and the history of the primary in 2012 in an episode called When We Help Ronnie, We Help Ourselves, which just kind of sums up how this primary even happened and reached such an important part. Uh, this year, you know, it may play a very important role because if you look at um, Vice President Biden's chances, I mean, this is all he really has. Doesn't win there. It may, it may very well determine the Democratic nominee. I want to encourage you to join if you want more. Join the premium podcast from My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. It's available. There's a link for it at www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. 
can see various options there for supporting get more back episodes i do also comment on episodes that have been recorded uh, some of the recent ones that we've had like the ark of commerce a dozen ronald reagan's and you break everybody's back about the 1988 election i talk more about that on the premium podcast and give you some things that were left on the legal pad thanks for listening The chairman of the Japanese electronic company, Sony, Masuru Ibuka, wanted to listen to the opera on his long flights to America. And he could do that, but he had to bring one of the company's large music recorders, the TCD-5. He wanted something smaller and asked the engineers what they could do. Eager to please the chairman of Sony, they said, well, we have this thing, it's called the Pressman. It's a portable tape recorder, and it's very popular with reporters. Journalists use it, uh, and it records on cassette tape. Cassette tape had been around since the early 60s. Uh, The only problem is it plays in mono and not that well. So they used their best playing technology, changed it to stereo. It worked for the chairman's flight, and he thought many others would like it. Cassette player, big clunky buttons, headphones that look like earmuffs. In 1979, they released it in mass, and they decided to change the name. Playing off the old product Pressman, they called it the Walkman. A cassette player that you could take around with you, with no external speaker, that was private, music just for you. 50,000 units sold immediately in Japan, brought to the States, and it became a huge hit. Not only because music was popular, but because so was exercise and aerobics during the early 1980s. And the Walkman was there at the right time. In fact, maybe the Walkman helped push people to do more exercise. We don't know. But we do know this. By 1983, cassettes outsold vinyl. And Walkman earned a place in the Oxford English Dictionary. As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, 
but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.